You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Forensic tools are dumped online after a security firm is breached. The IRS warns that W-2 fraud is being combined with business email compromise. We've got some Cisco router vulnerabilities. A Windows Zero Day can produce the blue screen of death. Recent surveys prompt a review of enterprise security spending priorities. The perimeter is down, the endpoint is up, the network visibility is everywhere. Russia's treason trial proceeds. The U.S. sends a good cop, bad cop message, or maybe just a mixed message in cyber. Author Frederick Lane helps expecting moms and dads avoid cyber traps. And where in the world is Hogwarts? I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Friday, February 3rd, 2017. The hacker who breached mobile forensic tool provider Celebrite last year has dumped code he or she or they claims to have obtained from that company. Celebrite's main product is the Universal Forensic Extraction Device, UFED, thought to be widely used by British and U.S. police to unlock phones in the course of criminal investigations. The hacker's dump includes tools related to cracking Android, BlackBerry, and older iOS devices. Motherboard reports that experts say the code looks like jailbreaking exploits adapted to forensic purposes. The declared motive is to demonstrate that such tools, once developed, inevitably find their way into undesirable hands, so observers are reading this as hacktivism directed against the alleged ease with which phone-cracking tools can be turned to repressive ends. Celebrite gained some fame during the FBI investigation of the San Bernardino Jihadist Massacre. The Bureau appears to have used Celebrite's technology to gain access to the killer's otherwise inaccessible device. In the U.S., the Internal Revenue Service warns that criminals are combining W-2 tax form theft with business email compromise in fraud campaigns expected to continue through the end of tax season. Bitdefender and the Sands Institute have analysis of Cisco router vulnerabilities, likely to be of particular concern with respect to home networks. U.S. CERT warns of a Windows Zero Day that could be exploited to bring about the BSOD, that is, the blue screen of death. Several recent studies have been tracking the evolution of enterprise spending on security. There appears to be a shift from prevention to detection, as organizations increasingly see network perimeter defenses as insufficient protection. A survey conducted by Anderson sees not only this shift, but also considerable interest in reducing the problem of false positives. Michael Patterson, Plixer International's CEO, agrees that false positives are a big problem and is driving interest in enterprise visibility. The recent Thales Data Threat Report also tracked enterprise spending in response to perception of threats and vulnerabilities. About a third of the enterprises surveyed consider themselves very vulnerable. Shandor Ballant, security lead for applied data science at Balabit, told us he's sympathetic to the security manager's plight. Quote, it's all too easy to chastise organizations for a perceived misalignment of security spending priorities. It's another thing to actually be at the helm and making calls. For many security managers, it feels like trying to plug a thousand holes in a boat while behind you someone's pointing out that the water's rising and you haven't plugged everything yet. End quote. His best advice? Once you've got the basics in place, invest in improved monitoring. Iran continues to find cyber operations an attractive means of striking foreign enemies and exerting domestic control. 
Internationally, it gives them a disruptive and destructive reach that's inexpensive and plausibly deniable. Domestically, the regime is sensitive to its own vulnerability to dissent and engages in a vigorous program of censorship. An Iranian dissident is taking a pirate radio-inspired approach to pirate podcasting to circumvent censorship. His California-based Iran-focused outfit, Irancubator, is soon to launch Raddy2, that's R-A-D-I-T-O, an Android app designed to enable people to listen to otherwise censored podcasts. Russia proceeds with its prosecution of current and former FSB officers on charges of treasonable Congress with the U.S. CIA. This is, as observers note, a case that has potential connections to both corruption and intragovernmental rivalry. It seems an FSB directorate may be undergoing a purge designed to curb its influence. There are some mixed signals from the U.S. with respect to Russian hacking. The U.S. Treasury Department is modifying sanctions against the FSB in ways that would permit U.S. firms to resume selling the FSB certain items as long as those wouldn't be used in Russian-occupied Crimea. The modifications are said, plausibly, to be the kind of regular re-evaluation and tweaking of sanctions Treasury always conducts, but it's difficult to see how a geographical restriction might be made to work. Also, we're curious about what U.S. companies might actually be interested in selling to the FSB. Okay, we know that the Russian government isn't communist anymore, but it's hard not to be reminded of Lenin's wisecrack that they would hang the capitalists, and the capitalists would compete to sell them the rope. On the other hand, the U.S. Army has announced that it's funding a Ukrainian cyber defense center, and that is surely an extremely unwelcome development in Russian eyes, especially since the Americans say this is intended as another step toward full Ukrainian integration with NATO. For its part, the European Union is preparing for destabilizing Russian cyber operations during this year's national elections. Finally, Dark Reading describes the UK's new school for hackers as a Hogwarts. Located appropriately enough at Bleckley Park, center of British code-breaking during the Second World War, the school is intended to train talent for Her Majesty's cyber services. But Hogwarts can't quite be right, because there are other such schools out there, too. Maybe it's just one house, perhaps Ravenclaw? We mention this because we're pretty sure Gryffindor has opened up about 250 miles north of us, somewhere around the Cathedral of Learning. That's right, the University of Pittsburgh is going into the cyber research and education business. The alumni on our editorial staff are pleased and proud. So, Gryffindor on the Monongahela. We'll let Carnegie Mellon and Penn State decide who wants to be Hufflepuff and who will cop to being Slytherin. After all, it's Pennsylvania, the land of pierogi, groundhogs, and white hat hackers. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps. 
upkeep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Malek Ben-Salem. She's the R&D manager for security at Accenture Technology Labs. Malek, we wanted to talk today about some of the research you all are doing uh, in regards to embedded devices. Yeah, uh, as you know, especially with the advent of the Internet of Things, uh, embedded devices are becoming increasingly connected. Uh, They're being deployed uh, in remote areas where they're exposed to tampering by um, adversaries. Uh, and it's hard to protect them uh, using the traditional mechanisms of protection uh, that we rely on, where we assume that the adversary does not have physical access to the device. Uh, and this is particularly important in, in the healthcare sector. So think about a hospital. You know, anybody could go in pretty much, and they can go into any patient room. They, can, they have access to the medical devices deployed there. And, you know, if they have a malicious intent, they may be able to modify what the device, what the medical device does, you know, introduce significant damage to the patient. So in order to protect against those types of uh, attacks and tampering with the devices, we partnered with uh, Johns Hopkins University with their uh, Healthcare Security uh, Institute. And we tried to come up with security mechanisms that would detect any tampering with the devices. Um, It relies on uh, profiling how a security device works in a particular mode, and we build a a sort of a a control flow graph that's dynamically built while that device is operating in that mode. Then in real time, um, we detect if the device starts behaving differently you know, basically deviates from the profile that we built for that device. And if we detect such deviation, uh, we can either alert a security administrator or uh, just in emergency cases, we can stop the device from working. Interesting stuff. Malek Ben-Salem, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. 
Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Frederick Lane. He's an attorney, public speaker, and the author of several books dealing with privacy and cybersecurity, including American Privacy, the 400-Year History of Our Most Contested Right, as well as a series of books covering what he refers to as cyber traps, including Cyber Traps for the Young, Cyber Traps for Educators, and his latest, the subject of our conversation, Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. When I'm talking about cyber traps, what I'm really talking about are things that are unexpected outcomes of using digital devices. So just by way of example, one of the things that I begin with is taking a look at some of the possible physical uh, issues that can arise from the use of technology. And I want to make it absolutely clear, I'm not a physician, don't even play one on TV, but I think um, if you take a look at the competing research out there, there are some legitimate issues that people should think about, whether or not, for instance, there's any issue with respect to exposure to uh, cell phone radiation, uh, either prior to pregnancy or during pregnancy itself. Are there issues in terms of uh, holding a hot you know, laptop on your actual lap uh, when you're either trying to get pregnant or when you're carrying a child? These are things that, or my goal in writing about these things was to give people a checklist of things that they might want to talk to their doctor about. Um, as I said, you know, the point of this is not to give medical advice, but to educate people about a range of topics that, that they really should discuss with a physician uh, during the course of pregnancy. Yeah, the, the second uh, section of your book is called Your Little Bundle of Data, and uh, that, that certainly <laughs> caught my eye. It's a, I, I like it. It's a, it's a clever name, but, um, you know, you're, you're, you're outlining ways that uh, even before the child arrives that parents need to think about uh, protecting their own privacy and that of the, the, the coming child. Right. And, and believe me, there's a, there's a ton of topics that we could spin off from there. I mean, obviously, in terms of the privacy of the mother, there's a, a real premium on the identity of women who are expecting children. And, and there's a good logical reason for that, because um, retailers and manufacturers know that a woman's spending on pregnancy really peaks in the end of the second and the beginning of the third trimester of the baby. What you see is that advertisers are willing to pay a premium, sometimes you know, by a factor of 15 or 20 to get data about women who are pregnant. Beyond that, you start getting into these issues of what kind of information are we going to release about the pregnancy or the birth and when are we going to do it? So, for instance, if you're um, a woman who's working and you're not necessarily sure that you want your boss to know right away that you're pregnant because it might impact your job, that raises issues about whether or not you put information on social media or how do you keep your friends from letting the whole world know that you're pregnant before you're ready to do so. That's one piece of it. Another piece that arises, and this is where we start getting into the impact on the child, is that literally from the moment that people start posting material online, they're, they're creating an identity for their child. And you can look at this different ways, obviously. I mean, 
I was I was out of the country for about a year, and it was really wonderful to be able to see photos of of my nieces and nephews and so forth. But what I think parents do need to think a little bit about is that when they are are, are creating an online identity for their child, they're having an impact on the child's ability to create their own online profile or their own online identity when they get older. What about the notion that that perhaps, you know, we're overlaying our own views of privacy on a, a generation that's coming up that is likely to have a very different view of privacy from us? Yeah, you know, I think that's a good question. I think that that it depends to a large extent on how you define privacy. A lot of this discussion is really about terminology and that the appropriate way for us to look at privacy and and to define that concept is not so much as a, a concrete thing, right? So that you would say, well, kids today, you know, they don't look at privacy the same way we did, you know, and I'm in my 50s. So, you know, they're different. And I, I think that the answer is we actually all have the same basic approach to privacy. And that is that that what we want to be private is really about how we control our information and what choices we make. One of the things that we see with, you know, the millennial kids today, and, and I've watched this with my own guys, is that they have that same desire to control information. They just make different choices than necessarily I would about the information that they're willing to share. Basically, what I think it boils down to is that the right to privacy is really the the ability to control who gets access to your information and under what circumstances. And that's something I think we, we all should agree on. That's Frederick Lane. The book is Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. You can find it on Amazon. You can learn more at his website, fredericklane.com. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.